Well, I don't have a clock up here today, so Catherine Wagonek said at 11.05 she's going to wave at me. That's why she's waving. If I don't stop by 11.10, TJ, you can throw a paper airplane at me. And if I still don't stop, Nick, you can come tackle me. And then at 11.25, just cut the mic. Good? <laughs> uh, hey, just a reminder, too, uh, we will be getting into the book of Judges come January. Uh, so it's been a while since we've been going through a book. We finished uh, Revelation, you might remember. We started in January. I think we wrapped up in uh, beginning October or so. We did the prayer series, and now Advent. So we're in the book of First jo- or John, the first chapter of these verses that Shar read. Uh, four themes from that for the our time in Advent. You know, I, I sometimes try to picture uh, the authors of Scripture writing out uh, the book or the letter, placing him in a setting. We don't know where John wrote this. We don't know when he wrote it. Uh, most likely it was several decades after he walked with Jesus. Remember, John, John saw Jesus do miracles. He, he, John saw Jesus as he touched lepers and they were made well. John was in the boat as Jesus came walking on the water. John was there as Lazarus Lazarus was called out from the dead. John saw Jesus rebuke demons and they had to submit to him. John, remember, we are told that the, only, the other disciples may have been standing there at the cross, but he's the only one that we're told actually was standing at the base of the cross for a time. The rest, we're told, were standing afar. John standing right at the base of the cross for a moment. And you might remember, Jesus at that moment tells John to take care of his mother, Mary. And it says, from that day forward, Mary lived with John. John ministered the gospel for decades. Uh, They experienced great joy, Pentecost, shortly after he saw Jesus resurrected from the dead, saw Jesus ascend into glory. Some 40 days later, Pentecost happened. The Holy Spirit comes to God's people. John experienced that day. John saw revival broke out or break out. Probably multiple times. People repenting, calling out in faith to God, trusting in Christ. John's brother James, Acts chapter 12, was killed. John had other close friends killed for the message of the gospel. John had friends imprisoned for the gospel. Moms, dads, taken from their family, not knowing where they're gone because of the gospel. John himself sent off to the island of Patmos because of the testimony of Christ. This is, this is John, remember. He, he, he then takes up his pen, or whatever it would have been, to write his account of Jesus, the the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ, the one who he worships, his master, his Lord. 
and the one he calls my friend. The one who he knew so intimately, who knew reciprocated a love towards John that remember in his gospel, John's calling himself the beloved. I am the beloved of Jesus. And I try to think about John, how he picks up his pen in that night, and uh, maybe it was night, maybe it was day, whatever. How do I, how do I describe Jesus to the people? Light. Light. In his first letter, you may recall, John says, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. In this very gospel, out of the words of Jesus will come that phrase, I am the light of the world. In the very opening paragraph, as he describes the word, as we saw last week, uh, God's saving revelation, he says that word is life, the very source of life. All life comes from that word. And that word, verse 4, is the light of men, shines into the darkness. What, is it, what does it mean for Jesus to be referred to as light? That's what we want to talk about today. What does it mean and why does it matter? Why does, why does the fact that Jesus is light matter this Tuesday when I'm just trying to keep my head above water. That's what we want to consider uh, today. So what does it mean? What, is, what does it mean for Jesus to be the light? Uh, we should remember that John, uh, John, though, throughout his gospel and his first letter especially, has this theme about darkness and light all throughout. I mean, it's a very strong theme throughout his gospel and the first letter. Uh, but it's not John that just made this up. This is a theme throughout Scripture, actually. And John is pulling from that. Uh, and so I want to walk through that a little bit uh, so that we can get to this point where John won. Then we read it and go, oh, yeah, that's exactly what John is doing. So actually, you might remember, the very first paragraph of our Bible, we are introduced to both darkness and light, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was hovering or over the surface of the deep, excuse me, and the Holy Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. The light he called day, the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. The very first paragraph of our Bible, we're introduced to darkness, and we're introduced to light. It's part of the original creation order. And it's still an order that we experience every day since then. Right? I mean, this is, just, this is part of the natural order that the human race has experienced every day. You know, it's 6, well, I guess right now it's at 4.30 p.m. or so. Uh, the sun will go away and darkness will settle upon 
the city. And we'll go a good 12 hours. It feels like 15 right now. It's a long time. Until finally what happens? The dawn. The civil dawn. Not the astronomical dawn or the nautical dawn. You guys know what that is? I do. I feel good. <laughs> I was looking at that this week. I thought, I got sh- to share how smart I am. I'm kidding. I don't really. I, I know there's three different types of dawn. I don't really know why they do that. Nonetheless, when the dawn comes, you know that a radical transformation is about to happen with what we see or what we don't see. Because really, light and darkness are no match, right? It's not like as the sun's coming up, you're going to be like, oh, who's going to win today? Is it going to be a dark day or a light day? Darkness is no match for light. When light comes in, it is a radical transformation. And we know that just in everyday things. I mean, we are live in a world now where we can flip on a switch. I thought it would be cool if it would be dark enough in here. We could turn off the lights and just boom. This is what we experience. So, uh, you know, we, we've been, we, the kids came up with this game. We played it the other day. It's, it was called Tag in the Dark. It was, it was a ton of fun. You know, we live in the, we live in the city. Uh, but even in the city, we can, get, we can get our house pretty dark. So we crank some music, and you can go on the first level and the second level, and uh, it's totally dark, and we're just playing tag, me and the kids. And the only rule uh, is, well, one, you can't turn on the light, but two, that you can't open or close any doors that aren't already open or closed. Now, at first, when they told me that, I thought, oh, man, I'm not going to be able to hide in certain places. But then once the, dark, the lights go out, you realize... I don't, I don't need any kind of those hiding places because you can hide like right in front of somebody and they can hardly see you. So I was hiding up in the closet upstairs and uh, Dupree, I think the person who was it was downstairs. Dupree comes upstairs. He's like, Dad, Dad. So I, he wants to hide with me and I said, come, come here. Come on, Dupree. So he comes into the room where I'm in and he's like, Dad, where are you? And I'm like, oh, I'm over here. And so I, he, he's walking around over by the closet and he's right in front of me. He's like, where are you, Dad? Where are you? And I just grabbed him, right? Because he couldn't, he couldn't see me. I'm, I'm right in front of him. Another hiding spot I, I found in, in one of the bedrooms, I'm sitting at the desk, just sitting there. And the kids kept running in and out, and they were tagging each other, and then, then they start going, where's Dad? We can't find him. Where's Dad? We can't find him. And I'm sitting on the desk. They just keep going right past me. And you know how they found me? Somebody had to go to the bathroom, so they called the timeout, and they flipped on the light, and boom, I'm right there. And the light was coming from the bathroom. It's shining into their room. It's like, almost like secondary light. It's not even in the same room. But that's how powerful light is. When light comes into darkness, it is radical transformation. It is instant. What could not be seen is suddenly plain sight. And I think that's why it's so fitting for... This, this uh, picture of physical light and darkness to be used this, using this physical reality for a spiritual reality. Because the, in, the, in the physical reality, we experience this just radical shift from darkness to light. And it's such a fitting illustration then to say the spiritual reality is the same way. We go from darkness to light. Light brings radical transformation. And so then we should ask, at least, then what what does the darkness represent? 
And so that's what I want to walk through. If this is what the sheet is all about. We're just going to, I just want to walk you through some of the scriptures where darkness is described uh, and what is it describing. So that when we get to John, we go, oh, that's what John may have in mind. So this is, you might think, a theology of darkness in the scriptures. Uh, not physical darkness. It's using a physical reality to explain a spiritual reality. So I'm going to start on the side that has Psalm 88 on the top. This is going to take some work, you know, to work through it. Uh, take a little bit of headspace to work through it. Hopefully it'll pay off. Uh, we're just going to read them. I'll give you kind of the, the they're, they're sectioned off into categories. And the first one is that uh, darkness, at times in Scripture, is used to describe death or the place of the dead. Now here's three places you see that, Psalm 88. Is your steadfast love, talking to God, is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Now notice this is a psalm. We're using parallelism. The first line parallels with the second. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Are your wonders known in the darkness? So he's referring to the grave, the place of the dead, as darkness. It's just, that's death. Job, before I go, uh, or before I go and die, and I shall not return, before I go to the land of darkness and deep shadow, the land of gloom and like thick darkness, that's where the place of the dead, like deep shadow without any order, where the light is as thick darkness, or Isaiah, uh, he, he will swallow up on this mountain, the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, he will swallow up death forever. In this, in this Isaiah passage, he doesn't use the word darkness, but he's using this covering. It's this idea of a veil hanging over the whole earth, all mankind, this covering that just darkens the earth. And what is the covering? But it's death. So death is one of the ways... Um, or one of, the, one of the aspects that death, darkness, is describing throughout the scriptures. Uh, the second one here is darkness is oftentimes referred to this evil system that is ruled by the enemy, Satan himself, for the powers of darkness. So darkness is talking about this, this world evil system that is dark. Acts 26, this is uh, Paul recounting when Jesus appeared to him. Uh, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to, the, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from a people, you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, here we go, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. So there you hear, uh, you see there, uh, Jesus is telling Paul that he's going to turn people from darkness to light, and then again it's a parallelism, from the power of Satan to, to God. You see that? So the power of Satan is referred to as darkness. The power of God is referred to as light. This is the, the system uh, that we all live under in the world. That's how it John describes it. First John, remember, uh, we know that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. Uh, Colossians there, uh, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness or the rule of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of 
his beloved son. Now here, Paul's writing to a group of Christians. He's talking about pre-conversion, but this is the, the, the natural state of humankind under the domain of darkness, under this world system that is darkness ruled by the devil. Ephesians 6, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly places. So the cosmic powers over this present darkness, which seem to be characterized as the schemes of the devil. So again, darkness uh, describes death in general. It describes the anti-God system that the enemy rules, this anti-God life. Now those under that system live in that system because of the next one. It's because they they have anti-God minds. They're ignorant of God, and they reject God. They don't want him. So 2 Corinthians And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. You see, their their minds are blinded in this system. They They can't even see the light. Or Romans 1, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. This is referring to the unbeliever or give God thanks, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And then John 3, 19b there, people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works are evil. Because everyone who does wicked things hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. So here we see simply that darkness is used to describe the mind. The mind and the heart of the unbeliever. It's darkened. It's been blinded by Satan. And it hates God. It does not want the light. Does not see it. Does not want it. And that's strong language in John 3 there. Hating the light. Wants nothing to do with it. Some of you experienced that, I'm sure. You probably remember that time. If you came to faith older in life. Where there was, I, I've, I've heard about Jesus and I don't want it. It's a darkened, darkened mind. And therefore, the next category happens that darkness oftentimes describes anti-God behavior. That is, walking in darkness, living in darkness, carrying out darkness. It's the behavior that comes out of this anti-God mind. First John 1, if we say we have fellowship with him, with God, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Proverbs 4, the way of the wicked is like Deep darkness, their behavior, their activities. It's like deep darkness. It's anti-God. First John 2, whoever hates his brother, well, he's in the darkness. 
and he walks in the darkness. He doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has, there you see it again, blinded his eyes. Proverbs 2, wisdom, uh, in this context, wisdom will give you discretion and understanding, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of uprightness. Why? To walk in the ways of darkness. Ephesians 5, therefore do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. That Ephesians 1 is quite striking too, because it's not only talking about the behavior, the anti, this anti-God behavior, but he actually says that's what you are. That's, that's your identity. That was your identity. If, uh, at one point, this is the identity, our natural identity. We are born as that, as darkness. That is all that will come out of us. We're blind to God, we reject God, we hate God, and we are darkness. And all that will come out of us is walking in darkness. Go to the back page, and because of that, uh, therefore, the darkness describes judgment. This is very common in the prophets, uh, but Psalm 107, some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons because they had rebelled against God, against the words of God, spurned the counsel of the Most High. They rebelled against God and therefore they sat in darkness. It's describing the judgment that God brought upon them. Uh, Deuteronomy 28, this is uh, the promises and the curses of the law. Uh, if you remember, uh, the Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. He's describing as the en- he will bring enemies of God's people to the land and they will take over the land. And this is what it will be like. You'll be mad, you'll be blind, confusion of mind. Uh, you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness. You shall not prosper in your ways. It's a gruesome picture. At noonday you'll grope like a blind person. So this is at, at, when the sun's at the highest, when it's bright out, you'll, you'll be like a, a blind person in, in darkness. That's what the judgment of God is going to feel like. Amos 5, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness, not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or he went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? Some gruesome pictures there. The man fleeing from a lion. It's like you, you, you're running from a lion and you finally got away from him. And as you're running, you're like, oh, I finally lost him. And boom, a bear just eats you. Like, right? Or he says you're, you're running from someone and you, you escape and you finally get into a house and you go, oh, finally I'm safe. And then the serpent bites you in the wall. So that, that's, that's what God's judgment is going to be like. You think you're going to outrun it, and then, bam, darkness will fall upon you. It's darkness. Zephaniah 1, the great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud. The mighty man, you see that? The mighty man, the strong man, the tough man, he cries aloud. Why? Because a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. The day of the Lord is darkness. 
It's judgment. You may recall that's one of the reasons why the Lord Jesus, Matthew 24, on the cross, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. The sixth, that at that time, still is like this in Ethiopia now. The clock starts at 6 a.m. for us. It starts at zero. So six, the sixth hour is noon. The, third hour, the ninth hour is 3 p.m. for us. So at noon, the day of the crucifixion, the sky went dark. The, the, the brightest time of the day, it's dark. Why is it dark? Well, theologically, the people should be experiencing there. This is God's judgment on people, the distaste towards their treatment of the sun, but also the judgment of God being represented on falling on the sun. It's the day of judgment at the cross. The judgment, of course, falling on Christ himself. Second Peter, referring to hell itself, these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm for the false teachers. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Oftentimes we think of hell described as fire and in uh, such fire and brimstone, which is true. It's described that way, uh, where the, the, the fire continues to burn, but the worm does not die. That's true. Hell is described that way, but hell is also described as utter darkness. Because most of us haven't experienced darkness that's truly dark, right? Uh, I've shared before years ago where they've done studies of putting people in the darkest places on earth, and people go literally insane within a couple of hours. Your brain can't handle it. Your emotions can't handle it. Matthew 25, same thing. And cast the worthless servant into outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The judgment of God, the wrath of God, described as darkness. So this is, this is the way the scriptures talk about darkness. This is a place of death. It's a place of an anti-God system where people's minds are darkened. They reject God. They're in, uh, ignorant of God. They walk in anti-God behavior. Because they're enslaved to it. And they can't see the light. And because of that, the judgment of God will be coming upon them. Not only do they walk in darkness now, but they will walk in true darkness for all eternity, experiencing the wrath of God. And this is the natural state that we all are born into. Which is why then in the Old Testament, especially when God talks about his visitation that's coming, the day when God is going to come and bring rescue to his people, he describes it as light. I'm going to come into that darkness. I'm going to overturn death. I'm going to overturn that anti-God system. I'm going to overturn the darkened mind, the darkened heart. And I'm going to shine light into it. I'm going to bring that radical transformation that you see when you turn on the switch. That's what it's going to be like in the hearts of the people when Messiah comes. When God comes, he is going to turn on the light so that all may see. So let's take a look at a couple of those passages here. Uh, We actually read this this morning. Connie read this. Uh, Isaiah 8, going into chapter 9. Uh, Here he's referring to uh, people who are uh, looking to mediums uh, and and such for, for guidance. Isaiah says, To the teaching and to the testimony the scriptures, to what God says. If they will not speak according to his word, it is because they have no dawn. 
They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. And they will turn their faces upward. They will look to the earth, but behold, they will experience distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. He's calling judgment on the people of Israel. But... There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And of course, you go four verses later. That's where we get our memory verse this month. Why? Because unto us a child is born. To us a child is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And he shall be given the name Wonderful Counselor. Everlasting Father, Mighty God, Prince of Peace. When he comes, it will be light in the darkness. Isaiah 42, talking about the servant of the Lord who will come to bring rescue. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am Yahweh, I have called you in righteousness. He's talking about the servant here. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. I will give you as a light for the nations. To open the eyes that are blind. To bring out the prisoners from the dungeon. From the prison, those who sit in darkness. The servant who comes and brings rescue will bring light. The very... End of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out like leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I command him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And then the Old Testament closes. I got a wave, so I'm waving back. Um, And then the Old Testament closes. God says, I'm going to come with light and dispel the darkness Put an end to the darkness. Bring a radical transformation to the darkness. And then there's silence for several hundred years. And then Luke opens up his gospel. You may remember the story of an old man. Old man who has no children. His wife is barren. Man's name is Zechariah. Wife's name is Elizabeth. Zechariah is a priest. He goes according to his normal duty to uh, the temple, to care for the temple. He is selected to actually go into the holy place. 
And you remember the story. He's visited by an angel, told that he will have a child. He doesn't believe it at first. And what happens? He's struck mute and most likely deaf as well. He can't hear or speak. Eventually goes home. Elizabeth indeed bears a child, gives birth to a child. On the eighth day, John still has not spoken. All the people gather around and they want to call him Zechariah. Elizabeth says, no, he shall be called John. John, because that's who he's supposed to call. Uh, Zechariah was told by the angel to call him John. And the people then turn to Zechariah, and they, 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 they think Elizabeth has lost it. So, like, we want to call him Zechariah. What should we call him? And John asks for a tablet, you may remember, and he writes down his name is John. And then it says he was filled with the Holy Spirit, and we get Zechariah's song. And the song is about the rescue that God is bringing to his people and how this son is going to be a forerunner. He's going to introduce the people to the Messiah that's coming. And this is how the very song closes uh, as John is talking for the very first time in nine months, praising the Lord. And this is how he closes his song at the bottom of the page. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby, this is coming out of Malachi, sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Light is coming. Now remember, Mary had stayed with Elizabeth and Zechariah for three months. So he's learning about the in Mary's belly is the very light right there. And light is coming to dispel the darkness, to bring an end, to bring a radical transformation. And so you might say it this way. The incarnation was the very dawn of the radical transformation that God was bringing to his people. It was the very dawn, Right? For real, though, civil dawn is six, six degrees below the horizon. So it's just like you just you start seeing the light, and it just pokes up finally. And then it's going to rise. The sunrise shall sun, come up and light the world. Or you might say it this way. Jesus as light refers to the radical transformation that God brings to his people. To take them from death to life. To take them from under the power of Satan to under the power of God. To take them from under the judgment of God to set free from the judgment of God. That's what light refers to. So when we think about the manger, we should think about how God brings light into our dark world. So in a very real way, if you're a follower of Christ, if you are blood-bought, you might think of it this way, this This week, as you look at the manger, as you see some things that are making you think about Christ coming and you want to think about the light, you might say this sort of a phrase in your mind, in your heart. I am free from darkness. Or to be more specific, I am free from the judgment of God because light has come. I'm free from the judgment of God. The judgment of God, the wrath of God is indeed coming. 
because of the darkness of the world. But I am free from it. I'm free. I'm free. That has got to be one of the greatest messages in the world. I just got an email from a friend last night who's, who is several decades older than me who got a, a severe diagnosis this past week or week and a half. Perhaps just weeks left of life. And he's reflecting. He's walked with the Lord for many years. And he said, this truly is an unwell situation. But my soul is truly well. Why is that? Because he also said, for the Christian, the best is yet to come. Why? Because we're free from God's judgment. If we are in the darkness, if the light had not come, we are not free from the judgment. We are not free from the darkness. Brothers and sisters, if you are blood-bought, that is true of you. You are free. That baby in the manger is the dawn of the radical rescue that he was bringing. Can you say that? I am free. I am. Or maybe you know someone that needs to hear that today. You insert their name. You are free. You are free. There's no reason for us to live in darkness or fear. Or you might say it this way. I am free from sin's power. Is that not what the light is doing? Comes in to destroy the power of sin? I am free from sin's power. Sin is powerful, right? Darkness is powerful. We shouldn't make no mistake about that. Right? There's lust which wages war against our soul. Uh, there's nothing weak about sin. It's powerful. But you who have had God's light shone on you, you're free. You are free from it. Now that's talking about positionally, maybe not always conditionally, right? We give ourselves to the power of sin, but we don't have to. It's been broken. It's according to the New Testament, right? Romans 6, we're no longer under its authority. We might give ourselves to it, but we don't have to. We're set free. The chains have been taken off. We are free. I am free. Will you, you think you'll need that message this week? Yeah, you will, right? Because sin shouts at you not only to do it, but it tells you, you can't resist me. You can't. I'm powerful, and you enjoy me. And that's what we need to know. No, no, no I, no, I do not. The light has shone over the darkness. You see what it says there in verse 5? The light shines in the darkness. Not that it's shown once, but it still shines. The work of Christ is still happening today. The light shines in the darkness, and I am free. I am free. Not I'll be free if I do A, B, and C. I am free from the darkness. I am free from sin's power. Is that not great news? That that baby in the manger was bringing us to set us free from the power of sin and the curse of sin. Of course, he was going to do it by living in the light, living perfectly, and not deserving any of the darkness, 
But as we saw, there he hangs on the cross in darkness because that was the very judgment of God falling upon him instead of those who trust in him. And today, as we partake in the Lord's Supper, we are reminded that it is that child who brought light, lived in the light, in the light that we could not live in, so that he could bring the true light that we needed. So if you're a follower of Christ, we invite you to the table this morning to partake. Remember the work of Christ that has opened the eyes of the blind. This is about walking in direction, not perfection. But if you profess Christ as Savior, then we invite you to come. If you do not uh, walk with Jesus or do not uh, profess him as Lord and Savior, then we ask that you not partake. Scripture says it would be bad for your soul. Uh, let's do come through the inner part of the aisle and then uh, go back on the outside. So come, grab the elements, and then return to your seat, and we'll partake together. Christian, let's be reminded today as we partake of the bread that you truly are free from the wrath of God, from the darkness that hangs over the earth and is coming one day, that all will experience that utter darkness. You have been set free from it, not because of what you've done, but because that child in the manger lived a life that you could not live and died the death that you deserve to die. For the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is for you, Christian. Now, I don't know what sin feels like. It just keeps nagging at you. But as we partake of the cup this morning, receive the reality that the new covenant has come. You are free from sin's power. For the Lord Jesus, in the same way, took the cup after supper, saying, This cup, it is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Let us stand and pray together. God, we thank you that the Lord Jesus brought life and immortality to light. God, as we look forward to the day where we experience it in all full measure, fully light, where we never give ourselves to the darkness. We long for that day. And we ask, God, that you give us the strength and discipline and energy to run the race this week, to walk in the light as you are in the light, to have fellowship with you and with one another. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.